Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. On this edition of Free Culture Radio, we're going to look at the decriminalization of people who use drugs. The drug war is fundamentally unsustainable. We've known this for decades. It's been painfully obvious. We keep throwing more and more money into the effort. We've made all kinds of minor repairs to the system to try and keep it going, like treatment alternatives to incarceration, drug courts, forced treatment. Heck, we even legalized weed in a lot of states, all to try and keep the underlying mechanisms of prohibition and drug war rolling along. Yet still, it's failing. So on this edition of Free Culture Radio, we're going to look at a growing trend that's been spreading across this lovely bit of northern Nabiyala that's referred to colonially as the United States. That trend is de facto drug decriminalization. Now, for listeners who, like me, did not take Latin in school, according to Britannica.com, quote, de facto, Latin, from the fact, a legal concept used to refer to what happens in reality or in practice, as opposed to de jure, from the law, which refers to what is actually notated in legal code, end quote. The NYU Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy hosted a seminar on de facto drug decriminalization recently. It was presented by Dr. Saba Rouhani, an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the NYU School of Global Public Health. Her presentation was entitled, You Don't Get Well in a Cell, Examining the Design, Implementation, and Impacts of De Facto Drug Decriminalization Policies in the United States. The title of my talk today is You Don't Get Well in a Cell. And this is a quote from a recent qualitative study uh, that I conducted examining different policy models of of de facto drug decriminalization in the country, which we'll talk about today. and but I also kind of chose this quote because I think it encompasses more broadly some of the the fundamental issues with the, the kind of paradigm we've had around drugs and criminality in the U.S. Uh, for quite some time. So before I get into the research, I'll just give a very brief background on the war on drugs and, and specifically on recent policy efforts to reverse or mitigate uh, some of its its negative impacts. So since the, you know, the launch of the official war on drugs, although drug prohibition was alive and well before that, the launch of the official war on drugs in 1971 by the Nixon administration uh, really led to unprecedented funding and militarization of law enforcement agencies around the country, uh, targeted policing and surveillance of low income and minoritized populations, especially the black population. Um, and and even after the the Nixon administration, it was there was really bipartisan uh, expansion and investment in tough on crime policies, right? So zero tolerance policing around drugs, uh, the use of mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, no knock warrants, things like this. And in parallel, an endorsement of abstinence as sort of the the only acceptable form of prevention. Uh, or treatment and recovery uh, when it came to to substance use related issues. And together, this has led to the vilification of certain people who use certain drugs in society, uh, as well as just massive racial disparities in the criminal legal system. And so 
There are a variety of kind of broader harms to society that have been incurred by this, you know, exposure to policing and incarceration uh, increases the risks of experiencing violent you know, interpersonal violence and mental health consequences. Uh, having a criminal record can result in systematic exclusion from public services and other supportive kind of structures in people's lives. And in combination with the financial burden of of not just incarceration, but kind of all of these processes around arrest and booking and incarceration, fines, forfeitures, surveillance, et cetera. Um, it really has driven an intergenerational entrenchment in poverty, um, specifically among people who have been kind of over-targeted by drug enforcement. So again, communities of color. And, and then drug enforcement has also potentiated what you know we we know now as is the public health crisis of police brutality right um the drug policy alliance recently did an analysis where they found i believe one in three of the lethal police encounters in 2020 began as a drug related interaction so the kind of drug enforcement has potentiated this broader public health issue of police brutality that's gaining a lot of attention today as well and then there are also quite specific pathways through which uh, punitive policies have uniquely amplified drug-related harms, right? So uh, concerns about fear of police and legal reprise for drug-related activity can be a real barrier to risk reduction and help-seeking among people who use drugs, who report, you know, rushing the purchase of use or drugs or feeling hesitant to carry or access sterile syringes, um, fentanyl test strips or call 911 during overdose events. People who are detained even for short periods of time may undergo periods of withdrawal and have changes to their drug tolerance uh, and also experience interruptions to mental health and substance use services, including treatment. Uh, and lastly, you know, the prohibition of drugs has created this vacuum in supply that's then filled by a very volatile illicit drug market which is kind of susceptible to contamination or the emergence of novel compounds, which we know are associated with a lot of the fatalities um, kind of in this contemporary overdose crisis. Um, so, you know, in the decades of policy evidence that we have, we also have seen no kind of effective deterrence uh, following from this set of policies. There's, you know, it, we haven't seen an impact on drug supply or, or drug demand. Illicit drugs remain widely available, widely used, widely in demand. What has changed uh, has, you know, is the overdose death rate in the country. Um, and what you what isn't shown on this graph that we've all seen is that overdose mortality is increasing most rapidly in the black population, who are also most likely to be criminalized both historically and currently for substance use related issues. So kind of within this context of the worsening overdose crisis alongside the Black Lives Matter movement and growing calls for police reform and accountability, we have started to see some policy reforms that specifically aim to mitigate the impacts of drug criminalization on health and racial disparities. Uh, and I like to think of these as falling kind of under two bins where targeted reforms are sort of suspending criminalization of drug activity at a very particular moment and, you know, bound by time or space. So, for example, an overdose Good Samaritan law is saying, you know, during an acute overdose event only, we will suspend criminalization 
uh, of certain drug activities. Similarly, overdose prevention centers, you know, what we're saying with those is like within these four walls during operating hours, we're suspending criminalization of drug use. Um, and then there's also what I think of as at least conceptually these broader reforms, which are not inherently as, as narrow in, in their suspension of the criminalization approach. And um, before I get into these definitions, I want to note that when I'm speaking about legalization, decriminalization, et cetera, I'm really not talking about the policies related to, to only cannabis or maybe cannabis and psilocybin. Given that I'm interested in the overdose crisis, I'm really talking more about um, substances that are implicated you know, therein, so opioid stimulants, et cetera. And so legalization, um, refers to the actual reclassification of, of a substance from licit, sorry, from illicit to licit. So the substance becomes legal and then you get into these issues of regulating supply, sale, consumption, et cetera. Decriminalization is fundamentally distinct because this, the substance in question actually remains illicit, but, um, but it eliminates criminal penalties for the possession or in some cases the use of that substance. So inherently decriminalization is not is not really dealing with supply in the same way uh, as legalization. What it is aiming to do is reduce that kind of the cascade of negative um, events that happen in someone's life due to carceral exposure. But the drug supply issue remains an issue. So I just I wanted to note that up front. Um, and, and in the United States, there's been kind of two key approaches that we've seen um, to enact some kind of de decriminalization policy uh, here in the US. And the first is a de jure decriminalization. So this is just basically decriminalization by law. Uh, and in the US setting, this has only happened in a sweeping way in the state of Oregon um, in their historic ballot measure that was passed in 2020. And that is not going to be the focus of my talk moving forward. What I've really been interested in learning about uh, is this other approach called de facto decriminalization, where they, um, sorry, there we go, the second approach, uh, known as de facto decriminalization, which refers to the use, a prosecutor's use, um, sort of a head prosecutor of a jurisdiction, their use of their discretionary power to essentially just stop charging drug, like low level drug related crimes. Um, and so, and the use of discretion is not in and of itself new, right? Prosecutors get a lot of different cases on their desk every day. They choose which ones to pursue and which not to pursue. But what's newer uh, relatively is the sort of deliberate deployment of this discretionary power to kind of approximate a policy or enact a particular policy agenda in the absence of formal legislation. We're listening to Professor Saba Ruani, PhD, presenting a seminar entitled You Don't Get Well in a Cell, Examining the Design, Implementation, and Impacts of De Facto Drug Decriminalization Policies in the United States, which was hosted February 12th by the NYU Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Welcome back. 
Now let's hear more from Dr. Rouhani and her talk entitled, You Don't Get Well in a Cell, Examining the Design, Implementation, and Impacts of De Facto Drug Decriminalization Policies in the United States. And this kind of movement of prosecutors that has been, has become known as the progressive prosecutor movement um, is a group of people who are pledging to kind of systematically use their discretionary power, again, to enact a particular policy agenda. It, It was already happening. Uh, has been growing in recent years, but it really experienced a boom in 2020 due to various factors kind of coalescing in its favor, I think. Um, So COVID was happening and there were really massive calls for decarceration in the name of infection control at that time. Uh, So people wanted to depopulate jails and prisons because of concerns about COVID transmission within them. And then also, obviously, uh, that was the year that George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were killed by the police. And this led to a real kind of renewed national reckoning um, with policing practices and racialized targeting. Uh, And then, you know, this was all also happening at a time when substance use uh, and mental health crises were amplifying, right? So there was really an appetite to, to decarcerate and to rethink some of the approaches Um, at that moment. And prosecutors began at that time doing things like declining to prosecute new cases, quashing outstanding warrants, dropping pending charges, and in some cases even commuting sentences um, related to sort of nonviolent low-level misdemeanors, including drug crimes, uh, largely possession possession of drugs or paraphernalia. And this isn't, this wasn't only being applied to drug crimes. There were other crimes included in a lot of these policies. Um, And it continues actually most recently, I believe that uh, I saw, you know, discussion of progressive prosecution in the news uh, because several prosecutors had pledged not to pursue any criminal charges related to abortion access uh, in settings where that is becoming more restricted. So again, this is kind of a strategy that is evolving and being used in various sectors. Um, And so with that background, I'm going to talk about some of my research examining the emerging models of de facto decriminalization with respect to to drug possession, uh, drug and paraphernalia possession in the U.S. So the key objectives of this first study um, really were to understand what is going on, frankly. I mean, the thing is, with de facto policy reform is that inherently like it's not codified into law. So you don't, the details can be very opaque. So we just wanted to examine what were the different policies that were actually being designed and implemented around the country um, and and understand what the implications then were for kind of impacts and, and measurement and evaluation. And so we conducted a policy implementation study uh, and we spoke with policymakers in 14 jurisdictions across the country. And when I refer to policymakers, uh, what I mean is that these were either directly elected uh, head prosecutors, so that's district attorneys or state's attorneys, um, or they're kind of like policy directors or people that were very senior on their policy team and engaged in the design and implementation of drug policy reform specifically. Uh, And we recruited them via their participation in this monthly working group that was happening on Zoom where people would get together and exchange tips and talk about the different reforms that they were pursuing in their jurisdiction. So people were self-selected in basically saying, hey, we are de facto decriminalizing and we will speak to you. 
Um, and these jurisdictions, you know, we had representation across all four U.S. Census regions. And then we also conducted some additional interviews with uh, national experts. So these were people who are working in, in essentially policy, drug and criminal legal um, policy advocacy organizations at the national level. And we conducted key informant interviews, exploring things like kind of drivers of policy adoption, uh, as well as details of the policy provisions, and then barriers and facilitators to implementation um, and sustainability and implications for racial equity. So when we kind of when we asked everybody like why why now why this, uh, prosecutors cited external pressures such as human and financial resource constraints. They just said they had too many cases and they really needed to be more strategic about what they were charging, and that these resource constraints were amplified uh, by COVID. People were facing really historic case backlogs and challenges with staff retention. Uh, that were that were amplifying those resource constraints. And then nearly everyone did also mention actually the calls for racial justice and police accountability as applying external pressure on the criminal legal system to, to make some changes. And then internally, uh, participants described just really profound demoralization among their staff with, with existing approaches to kind of cycling people in and out for low-level drug crimes. Uh, and a real desire to focus on crimes with victims, as they as they put it, uh, as well as some increased internal monitoring of racial disparities and charging practices that were also mounting pressure from within. And this was effectively summed up by one of the national experts that we spoke to, uh, who said, prosecutors are wising up and saying, look, criminalizing drug use is something that's burdening my office. It's costing a lot of money. It's wreaking havoc on my community. It's not making us safer and it's better handled by public health. When we actually dug into characterizing some of the different policies uh, that, that people were devising and implementing, we saw a lot of variation. Um, and we kind of tried to group these into three broad bins or policy typologies. The first set of, of the first set of offices were um, we're enacting what we called unconditional declination to prosecute. So really blanket policies saying like we will not be prosecuting um, any, you know, possession of, of uh, substances or paraphernalia at all. And there are no conditions to this. Um, the second kind of policy model that we saw still relied heavily on this, this principle of declination to prosecute, but it did have, you know, people who we spoke to said that they were, um, they were kind of safeguarding their discretionary ability there. So they either were still choosing on a case by case basis, or uh, they actually did enact a blanket policy, but it was conditional on what kind of substance. So we had, for example, places who said, you know, our jurisdiction isn't ready to do this for everything, but we can definitely do it for buprenorphine um, being used like or possessed without a prescription. Um, so those were that was kind of the middle group. And then we also spoke with several participants who had again self-identified as progressive prosecutor prosecutors who were enacting de facto decriminalization, but they said that they were doing so through by exploiting existing diversionary kind of infrastructure. So they said to us, you know, we are 
our approach is to completely relax eligibility requirements and or completion requirements for all these diversionary programs we have so that in effect, we're not prosecuting uh, as many drug cases at all, but that we're funneling people through these existing symptom, uh, systems in order to, to not be prosecuted. And, and within and across these, uh, there was also still huge variation in terms of whether or not threshold limits were placed um, on simple possession. And importantly, on whether or not the policies were actually formalized, written anywhere, disseminated to constituents, disseminated you know, to the public in any way. And so, I mean, this was interesting because uh, several prosecutors who were elected on a progressive platform felt that it was very important for them to actually disseminate uh, what they were doing. Others felt that like politically, in order to survive, they needed to actually really, really uh, explicitly keep policy details internal. And so this has like huge implications for impact and evaluation, I would think, because if we, you know, if people don't know about the policy, um, thinking back, especially to those police avoidant behaviors, you know, it's probably not as likely to impact their behaviors if they don't know about it. So this was actually a key point of variation across sites. Uh, and we identified several challenges and barriers, but one that I wanted to highlight uh, was this law enforcement issue. This was something that every participant said was critical to the policy be, you know, being implemented at all, but also represented their biggest challenge. Um, <clears throat> and you know, we had one participant say, what is a real challenge is rank and file police undermining the policies by telling people, well, we can't prosecute this drug dealer anymore because of the DA. And then people believing that the police leadership know it's not true. We are prosecuting that. Most times with the public, when they complain about the policies, it's grounded in not understanding or being misled by the police. The police union have gone out of their way to undermine what we're trying to do. We had another participant say, it's also about making sure that when we get the police reports, that they're not putting intent to distribute when it really is simple possession because they would want us to prosecute it. So interestingly, most sites actually had the endorsement of like the police chief or police leadership. But what they were telling us is that either the street officers or kind of going above that level, the unions were really actively um, undermining some of their policies. We also spoke with participants, given how frequently racial justice and racial equity were cited in motivators for the policy. Um, we talked to participants a little bit about what the implications, you know, what they expected the impacts to be um, in that realm. And participants felt frustrated uh, about a few things. First of all, the the kind of siloed nature of the policy itself was was a point of difficulty for everybody you know prosecutors said look we only have like the power to stop prosecuting that's the only role that we have and so because this isn't a broader legislative effort funds can't be earmarked to scale up other services we might get verbal buy-in from health or or law enforcement but there's not like really commensurate action necessarily. So they they felt frustrated because they were like, this is all we can do. We can't fix housing. We can't fix treatment, access, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so they were very aware that that would have implications, uh, in, in, that that would comprise an obstacle for achieving racial equity 
uh, in particular. And then another kind of interesting point that came up was this issue of, of not, uh, well, of retroactive uh, policy enactment, right? So at the beginning of COVID, uh, many offices did uh, do some do things like commuting sentences or, you know, actually address basically the, the large number of people who've already been criminalized for substance use. But that largely has not continued. And prosecutors were explaining that, like, look, we know that that's needed to achieve our goals, but also not prosecuting, declining to prosecute reduces our workload. And actually going back and like doing case reviews and expunging charges, et cetera, that vastly increases our workload. And so we know it's necessary, but it's just simply not like there's this tension here where that's not feasible. And we know that that's going to limit um, our policy impact. And then lastly, you know, everybody discussed um, the, the issue about p police discretion, certainly, but also even prosecutor discretion. So we had one participant who was speaking to us from a setting where they had enacted really a, a sweeping unconditional policy. And this person was kind of lamenting some of the other policies um, that were being enacted through discretion. And they said to us, the thing I hate hearing more than anything is that we're looking at things on a case by case basis, because that absolutely means that if you have the right defense attorney, the right color skin, money in your pocket, you're going to get some relief. And if you're poor and black and brown, you're not going to get that. So there was this feeling of like, even though the the method relies on discretion, that that discretion itself obviously carries the risks of reinforcing existing disparities in the system. And lastly, um, you know, when we spoke about threats to sustainability, a couple of key themes emerged, mostly political opposition and public perceptions of crime. These were the things that we heard over and over again. And Participants did face considerable political opposition and they felt, you know, they they discussed that this was being portrayed in the media as like grassroots opposition among their constituents, but that in fact, they felt that this was really uh, targeted, targeted uh, kind of sabotage campaigns being funded by certain uh, elements of the business community and certain elements of the conservative establishment so that there was a lot of money being poured in to recall efforts or <clears throat> to funding um, opposing candidates. And uh, and they felt that this was having, that this was very effective, in particular, the media piece was very effective in, in kind of stoking public fears about crime. That was Professor Saba Ruani, PhD, presenting a seminar entitled, You Don't Get Well in a Cell, Examining the Design, Implementation, and Impacts of De Facto Drug Decriminalization Policies in the United States, that was hosted February 12th by the NYU Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy. And for now, that's it. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Many thanks to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it, and you make it all possible. Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for community radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Please support your local community radio station. Become a member. Become a volunteer. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Links are at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. Theme music for Free Culture Radio is composed and performed by Tom Nickel and Four Dimensional Nightmare and is used with permission of the artist. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. 
This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. So long.